Hi, my name is Rich Nadwarney, and welcome to Innovation Explorers, Hello Future's English podcast that dives into the challenges and rewards of innovation. Each episode, we talk with people on the front lines of innovation and change work as they share their unique perspectives on some of the most common issues we face. This podcast is primarily for those of you working in large and mid-sized organizations who want to get your change and innovation initiatives moving faster, better, and with more internal alignment. This week, I'm speaking with Tom Goodwin, design and innovation expert, public speaker, and author of the book, Digital Darwinism. For over a decade, Tom has been inspiring me with his thoughts and questions. In this episode, Tom talks about a new way of describing disruptive innovation that is very different from the way that Clayton Christensen described it, and how the act of asking good questions is not only highly underrated, but critical in creating innovation and making our world into a better place. Well, welcome, Tom. It's incredibly nice to have you on Innovation Explorers. Thank you very much, Rich. I'm excited to talk to you more. And, and Tom, you just got back from Asia, where you've been traveling around a while, and you're en route to North America, you're in England. Tell us just a little bit, why are you traveling so much? Um, uh, I mean, I, I tend to do a keynote speaking around the world, so that becomes the, the impetus and the reason to be in a particular place at a particular time. Um, but more broadly, my, my role is to try and understand how the world's changing um, and how it's not and what that means for people in business. Um, and the only way really to understand um, is to go out there and, and see what's happening, you know, see the business models that are taking over various places, um, jump on a high speed train in China, um, talk to people in Jakarta. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of my job to, to treat the world like a big R&D lab and to try and make sense of it all. Well, you know, for me, this is one of the most fun things about this podcast with you is I've been following you for like a, at least 10 10, 12 years more wow. on, on Twitter in the beginning when all of us digital strategists were there. And then <laughs> lately as Twitter is you know imploding on LinkedIn, and I've kind of looked at to you to kind of as this uh, very uh, provocative thought leader of you know challenging a lot of assumptions that we designers and innovators go to work with every day. And, and to me, that's it's been incredibly helpful to me and also challenging what I'm doing. And I've recently read your book, Digital Darwinism. <laughs> Good. Well, you know, it's a great title. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, because it's the second edition now, why did you write the book? I, I give such a terrible answer to this question, but I wrote it because lots of people told me I should. Um, I, I didn't really want to write a book, to be honest. Um, what I love about social media is that you're able to pull out from people what they know. Um, I think a lot of people think social media is this sort of frenetic place to have arguments and to say mean things about each other. Um, I see it as a as a sort of network of brilliant minds that I can learn from. Um, so I like posting on LinkedIn in particular because people will tell you that you're wrong, people will tell you why you're wrong, people will tell you what you should be, you know, looking at. Um, so books were not natural to me. Um, I preferred writing things that were live that you could learn from that were in real time. Um, but I, I couldn't sort of turn down an opportunity that came my way. Um, and it was nice to have the ability um, to sort of present arguments or present thinking in a longer form. Um, it was nice to write a, the kind of book that I thought should exist in the world. 
Um, I'm not a big fan of books, if you ask me. Like, I think a lot of business yeah. books, basically, you know, they're three 1,000-word articles, maybe with four ideas in them that are kind of padded out to be thick enough to stick on a bookshelf. Um, so when I went about the process of writing a book, I I was very thoughtful about what a reader might actually want to read about um, and ensuring that there was enough stuff in there to make it worth people's time and attention. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I'm 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 a sucker for business books. I've I've bought like hundreds of them over the years. I've read maybe a third of them. You know, I go through the first two chapters and like I've seen I've read this blog yeah, before, and, exactly. and then and then I give and I give the book away. And I I thought it was interesting with digital Darwinism specifically because you kind of go through that digital door because that's kind of where everyone is, but that's really not what you're not really talking about digital all that much. You're talking about innovation and transformation and change and meaning much more than digital. My, my take on it. Yeah. I think um, the technology that we have, which is not all digital stuff, but broadly speaking, there's a sort of tapestry or, or canvas of, of opportunity out there. Um, and it raises quite existential questions about things like well, what is the nature of education or how should governance be different or what things from the past do we have that now hold us back. Um, so without meaning to be philosophical, quite a lot of the book ends up being quite philosophical. Um, but the, the sort of spirit of it is not rooted in contrarianism. It's rooted in this idea that um, we shouldn't go about life in a lazy way. You know, we, we shouldn't assume that the changes are simple. Um, we shouldn't assume that people are simple. Um, and it's trying to get people to be more comfortable with the debates and the questions that we need in order to be able to thrive in the future. You know, one of the one of the things that had a lot of energy for me in this book was just your your description of disruption, because we see this phrase disruption a lot. Um, and, you know, Clayton Christensen, he made a very good, you know, living off of disruption of this <laughs> idea that, you know, these low cost digital startups would get a foothold in the market and, and you know, outcompete everyone else. And and you had a different description. You said you know, disruption is really the process of challenging widely held assumptions to create a significant business advantage. And here's the big one that comes from an understanding of consumers' needs. Yeah, I mean, tell us you know, a little bit how you how you got there. Yeah, I mean, to start with, I, I do have a sort of disdain for a lot of the terms that we use. Um, a lot of expressions become quite popular, and then they become useless. You know, reimagination is a good example where you can kind of walk past the hotel and it'll have a sign saying we're reimagining our lobby. And you think you're not reimagining it. If you reimagined it, you'd think, why do we have a lobby? Um, and it would look totally different, but instead you're refurbishing it. Um, and I think disruption is one of these terms where actually the, you know, the, the root of it should be quite profound and quite clearly, um, quite clearly defined. And it's not, it's just becoming a sort of a word that means sort of change or things going differently or thing, people going about things differently. I, I sort of, I quite quickly realized I had quite a lot of problems with the way that um, Clayton Christensen was using this. And I realized that his theory just didn't make sense in the modern world. Um, his theory makes perfect sense for the world of hardware, um, where things like material science and physics matter a lot. And it made no sense in the world of software, which was actually really about ideas and empathy. 
um, and sort of cocooning people with technology to make better things. You know, Uber wasn't a cheaper way to hail a cab for most people, at least not to start with. Airbnb isn't really a cheaper way to get um, a roof over your head. Uh, the iPhone certainly wasn't a cheaper way to browse the internet. Um, dating apps weren't cheaper um, than apps that came before or, or technologies before. Um, neobanks weren't offering cheaper or, or sort of better accounts. Actually, what was happening is that we, there was a whole sort of tranche of companies that understood that technology allowed them to just do things in a way that were more personal, more more interesting, more ambitious. Um, and that for me is where disruption started to make sense. It's actually, you know, how can you make something better? Um, you know, again, D to C, there's no, there's nothing really inherently um, cost reductive about going direct to consumer. Um, but in theory, it allows you to create things that are better because um, you're able to sort of try out new ideas more quickly and a whole generation of people that don't have expertise can challenge conventions and, and so forth. That, that challenging convention, I think, is, again, this one of the places where you know, I see you a lot of you, right? We're ch challenging these basic yeah. assumptions. We're walking around with all day. And I'm I, just in this discussion of disruption, you know, again, this overused word, I love the word, but we use it a lot and we have a poor understanding of, of even innovation because we call almost everything innovation. I'm wondering like, what's your, what, what's innovation to you then? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I think in a way, innovation is rooted in the idea of a better way to do something that happens because people use a sort of wider sense of what's possible and people are perhaps a little bit more ambitious and perhaps people sort of join the dots in a different way. Um, it's kind of more of a feeling, really. You sort of know that something's innovative um, when you're in the meeting. You know, you know when something's a sort of incremental improvement. You know when people are making assumptions and just doing what other people did. But I think innovation always feels a little different. It feels a bit more exciting. It feels a bit more risky. But my my main thing is, um, you know, I've realised for the last few weeks actually, I quite often be on calls, and um, I'm not being a contrarian, but but almost. Almost all the time on a call, I'll be thinking, but is that true? You know, are you sure? Um, and you realize how much of modern business is based on, I'm not saying it's sort of lazy, but there's a sort of risk aversion. There's, you know, people people will say, I don't know, people want conversations with brands. And you're there and you sort of think, no, they don't. Like, have you ever met a person? <laughs> You know, like people, people, and and maybe there are extreme cases. Maybe if you're, you know, a fan of Patagonia, you might you might want to talk to them. Yeah, but most people are buying vegetable oil, or they're buying uh, antifreeze, or they're trying to fill up with petrol, or they're booking an airline. You know, again, like I don't want to talk to American Airlines, and if I do, you know, I want to find out, you know, why my seat's been changed. Um, I don't want to know about their their brand persona. Um, you know, people. I was sort of on a call the other day talking about the car buying process, and someone was saying. Um, as you know, it's the, the phone process, the, the process of buying a, a tariff for a phone. And they were saying, you know, if we can make this quicker, that's going to save us a lot of money because, you know, actually the whole point of this is to get people to buy things um, in the shortest possible time. But I kind of thought, well, you know, is it because actually if people have a better experience going into buying their tariff, then maybe they're more likely to stick with it in hard times. Um, so I, I, I kind of constantly find myself being annoying. Um, obviously with good intentions, um, but it's almost like being a sort of personal trainer to someone's brain sometimes. Well, you know, you, you're using the word lazy, and that's a, a, a fun word to use. I, I'm 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 trying to use easy now as opposed to easy and hard, mm. right? Because 
some of these improvements we talk about, they're hard. They're just harder. They take a little more time. Right. They take a little more thought. Yeah, they yeah. take a little more effort. It's the risk. The easiest, like when we when we try to uh, you know reduce that or avoid that, and and we lose a lot of. To me, it's like I kind of like doing things that are hard and challenging yeah. because it because I get bored easily. No, I feel exactly the same way actually, and I was always quite surprised when I had more corporate jobs in America. You know, mostly people didn't want to go through the effort of the more difficult conversations. I mean, don't get me wrong, people would work very hard. Like people would be there for hours, you know, putting images on decks and coming up with new ideas. But actually, um, I always felt our job was to to add value by by doing the difficult things. Um, you know, sometimes I mean going to the client and saying, you know, are you sure you want to launch this product now? Um, are you sure you want to spend more money on marketing it when it's not working? Um, you know, are you sure the brief that you've given us is right? Like those things, you know, they're sort of hard, but they're not that hard. I mean, they're not coal mining hard. They're not, you know, being a chimney sweep at the age of nine hard. They're not sort of <laughs> mesothelioma class action lawsuits because you've destroyed your body hard. Um, they're just a little bit uncomfortable. Um, but as long as you realize you're doing these things for the right reasons, and as long as you can create a good relationship with your client, um, then they shouldn't see you being as obstructionist and they shouldn't see you as being um, badly intentioned and they shouldn't see you as being um, disruptive. Um, they should see you as being the people that make everyone work harder to come up with better work. So it, it was always a bit strange to me. Well, it's interesting, this idea of leaning into uncomfortable situations. Mm. Again, uh, we're not very well trained. We don't get trained at doing that. You know, we get trained to please the client and give them three choices and they choose one of them. I had, you reminded me of an, an example where, again, it was a digital service. They wanted to launch it. I had a, I had a previous client. She's like, let's bring Rich in and just kind of check this out. And I do, you know, I, I go and talk with people and there's like, no, there's no, it feels no need. People have no interest in it. And when I come back to that, the, you know, the, the CEO who's starting this project, he was like, just incredibly angry at me. He's like, of course there's a need for it because I see someone else doing it. So why would they be doing it? And it's like, well, they're probably losing a lot of money. And so again, we had this really long process where ultimately they tried something out and it didn't work at all. And they kind of moved on. And it's like, you know, that was better than just kind of saying, yeah, everybody wants this. But you you had you have another quote that kind of talks to gets to this like we overvalue correct answers and undervalue statements that make you think, even if they turn out to be wrong. Oh, yeah. I, I, I love that. that. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. Um, and uh, maybe this is my way of um, sort of dealing with critics. Maybe I'm being quite clever at writing this and just trying to sort of deflate um, anger that comes my way. Um, but I really think it's true, actually. Um you know, the act of asking good questions, I think, is massively over uh, underrated. Um, I think people think that good answers are, are really valuable and often they're not. Um, you know, almost everything we do today is interesting. And almost every conversation about what we do is quite interesting. Um, people who are very different to us, um, their inputs are extremely interesting. And, I, you know, I guess these things are difficult. You know, it's quite hard to combine the opinion of an economist with an opinion of an astronomer, with an opinion of a teenager. Um, but it's it's also quite good fun. And I think in our search to get to a better place, yeah, we, we do need to ask questions that make us feel quite vulnerable. Um, we do need to uh, question things that are unquestionable. And in the process of doing that, 
you kind of explore new areas really um and you can be more confident about what you think you know because you can test it to make sure it's it's correct and in this process you will say things that are stupid and you'll say things that are naive and you'll say things that make you feel scared um but that's quite good fun isn't it you know like we should all be confident enough with ourselves in the world to know that we've got into these rooms because we're good at what we do and asking two questions in a meeting regardless of who's in there um that make you look stupid you know i would imagine that's unlikely to be career ending and if you ask two stupid questions that make you look bad at the same time you probably ask seven questions that make you look amazing um so you know people worry way too much about this stuff I couldn't agree more. This idea of looking stupid. It's like not going to be the first time, not going to be the last time. We just keep doing that. In in a way, you're kind of talking about we're kind of even in asking these stupid questions, it gets to this whole, you know, the design prototyping. We're just kind of prototyping and testing stuff just to see what happens. Yeah. And and it's it's funny that we we don't really think of ourselves as as objects of this design process. It's something we do to some to something else yeah you, kind of, you have another you have another piece around innovation right about getting better you've talked about that but you've also said that you know it requires more thought it requires reductions not additions i thought that was really interesting because we think we want to add we keep on adding more things but you're kind of pointing to sometimes innovation is less yeah i think um this is a bit more specific to a context. I mean, I think the innovation process is normally one of going wider and coming up with more ideas and then going through a period of reducing them down. Um, but I think especially when it comes to things like, you know, sort of transactional experiences or customer experiences, um, a lot of the briefs we get almost by definition are about more. You know, it's always how can you create new products? How can you create more variety? Um, how can you add a layer into the advertising process where people can experience something? You know, because almost by definition, when you've got a budget, you probably need to make something. Like, I think it's it'd be quite brave for an agency to say, it's amazing, you've given us a million dollars, you know, we're going to remove two steps from the booking flow. Because you're supposed to make something, aren't you? You're supposed to say we've done a VR experience with it. Mm. But in particular in marketing, I see all these things that get in the way. You know, you, you can have a a beautiful ad served for an amazing toaster, you know, and that will take you to a sort of microsite where you can find out more. You know, maybe you just want to buy the toaster. You can see a beautiful new range of, of sort of sports clothing made out of recycled polyester, and then you can, you know, be a part of the conversation or you can participate or you can upload something again maybe you just want to find the, the local store where you can try it on so i think um the art really to marketing this these days is knowing when to add more and to make sure that's valuable to that person at that moment in time and know when to simplify and to make things more um straightforward and faster and often most of the time it's actually the latter it is a bit different in luxury it's a bit different in products that people love um it's a bit difficult in some touch points you know the art of buying a, a vacation for some people is actually you know not something to automate it's something to add uh friction to and to make feel exciting uh, but most of the time we're really trying to make things more simple um but like i said before you don't tend to get paid that well to, to say no to things and to reduce things and to strip them out well it's interesting too because we we work with a lot of public sector organizations in sweden you know, they're actually compared with other parts of the world very far ahead with integrating service design and starting these innovation projects, even if it's hard for them, mm -hmm. because 
you know, they're they're in a different. There's no there's no really growth demand there. It's it's almost the opposite. They're getting less and less. And so this idea of innovation as reduction, I think, is really you know interesting for them because in one sense they are trying to automate as much as they can. Mm-hmm. And yet, on the other hand, it's an incredibly highly personal experience people are having with, you know, these municipalities and state governments. So, yeah, that's it's just this weird balance of the personal and the automated. How do you put both of those together? Because it is a lot of reduction in there. Yeah, that's why it's really useful to make sure that we're focused on people. I see a lot of movements. I mean, you obviously get this a lot in Sweden where, you know, labor labor is quite expensive expensive um so everything from self-service kiosks to self-service um bag checker airports you know one has to be careful that um in the process of making things more simple sometimes you can make them more complex because people don't know how to use it and you need to employ people to train people on how to navigate this new way of doing things but i think um you know people might think it's very mysterious but actually you just need to think about it um, you know, myself as a regular flyer, there are times when you actually want to talk to someone. You know, I, I quite like having paper boarding passes because it sort of makes me feel, you know, like I've got um, a ticket to get me on something. I quite like checking my bags in with the person because I feel more reassured that it's going to end up in the right place. I, I quite like moments of friction. Um, but there'll be other times, be like hotels, you know, there are times you're checking into a hotel and you want them to tell you everything about your room. And then there are times you check into a hotel and you wish you didn't have to speak to someone. And I think yep. uh, designing for all these different use cases is um, it's not that hard, um, but I think that people don't do it enough. They tend to choose one or the other rather than offer a choice. Well, it's interesting. Designing both for ease and friction at the same time, you're right. We, we do. We make a choice. We're either going to make it slower or we're going to make it faster rather than design, designing friction points. It's, it's pretty, that's a pretty uh, interesting thought. As we get into kind of making thing e- things easier, I- I've been noticing on LinkedIn, of course, like everyone everyone on LinkedIn has an opinion about AI and chat GPT, mm. and uh, you included. And, I, and one of the things that's kind of jumping out to me uh, with some of the things you're saying is, you know, we, we love to jump on these hype bandwagons for every new thing that comes along. But, you know, this idea of how would we use chat GPT to you know, reduce all of the boring things that we have to do. I think you brought up a statistic that is like we produce more documents now than we ever did before there were computers. And so I like this idea of how would we use chat GPT kind of as this boring innovation engine, right? We talk about the sexy innovation, not so much about the boring stuff, the mundane stuff that we don't want to do. And I'm kind of wondering, you know, what caused that thought? Because I, I think it's a great thought, this whole idea of boring and slow innovation as as opposed to the fast and sexy. Yeah, I mean, um, I am aware sometimes that it's almost like I have an immediate reaction to to sort of discard what people are doing. Um, and maybe I am being more contrarian for the sake of it than I realize. But so many of the use cases for chat GPT so far um, seem to be driven by, you know, a million people playing with it and then coming up with ideas for what you can do with it. And then almost by definition, the ones that seem the most outlandish and the most sort of sexy and the most um, easy to visualize um, and the ones that are the most PRable, those are the ones that seem to dominate. Um, you know, so we now have an array of, of, of startups that can make amazing looking images. 
Um, they, I mean, they really are amazing. But, you know, it's not like three years ago, we all sat around the office going, if only we could employ more illustrators, you know, if only we could make boob board faster. You know, the reality is that unless you're working on a Saturday night TV show, we need to sort of mock up funny scenes of celebrities being drunk or something. Um, and most of the time, actually making images is not a particularly important part of our job. Um, you know, I do a lot of keynote presentations. And in theory, I should love the idea that I can make a, a picture of a clown burning money because it's going to help me with my PowerPoint slide that says it's like a cloud burning money. Um, but I don't really need that. I could just show a picture of a clown and that's enough. Or just nothing and just ask people to use their imagination. So, you know, the, a lot of the stuff that we're seeing at the moment is quite superficial and quite silly. And I realized that as I went through the process of thinking, what am I doing in my job? Um, and when I went through the process of talking to other people about what their jobs are like, um, and when I go through the process of just looking at the world and seeing people as they check you into hotels or as they um, drive taxis or as they work in um, kiosks in the middle of a Chinese mall, you know, you actually think, you know, the, the most of the things that we're doing are really, I don't know, trying to sign a lease for the rent on a kiosk. It's trying to set up a new supplier agreement. Um, it's organizing meetings, it's moving back meetings, it's um, trying to find um, a taxi. Like actually most of the stuff that we really spend our time doing is incredibly boring. And it's much more interesting to think, I mean, one, what can AI be used to do in that context? But also, you know, what could actually be removed from the whole process? Because I think our temptation is to use technology to do something that's stupid and and unnecessary and to do it faster but perhaps going back to what we were talking about before perhaps we should just remove it you know perhaps there's a way to onboard new suppliers without filling in 17 different bits of paperwork perhaps ai is not the answer perhaps you know reduction in bureaucracy is or you know a technology that's more simple like cloud-based computing or something um so it's, it's going to be interesting i, I do see this sort of wave of enthusiasm dying down quite quickly actually i do it reminds me a bit of an alexa like experience where for the first two months you're enamored by what it can do and the next two months you're kind of pissed off by what it can't so yeah we will see what happens just to get back to the book for a bit <laughs> you you also talk about uh these four steps to transform your company yes right you talk about provoking transformation, of creating a vision and mission for the future, of an operational transformation, and lastly, culture for transformation. I'm wondering if you remember these. What what, uh, what, what, what were you thinking as you kind of put these, you put these in order in some way, and I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the, so the first book was um, led with this question of what would your company look like if you set it up today? Um, and I like that question. It was quite annoying. But within it, it it sort of created a sense of action and self-doubt. And then I realized the second book should be a bit more helpful. So the sort of idea behind the second book is what should your company look like if you set it up today and how did you get there? Um, so I tried to go about a sort of um, a process by which people could evaluate their business um, and provide a better way to operate and then give people the, the steps to get there. I realize it's quite hard because every company is very different. You know, there are some um, that are huge and they have people everywhere. And there are some that are tiny and some companies need to change quickly. Some companies don't need to change that much. Um, so I realized already that it was going to be quite hard. So it became a sort of framework and a series of, of actions that people could follow 
Um, again, not with the view of giving people the perfect answer, um, but with the view of asking people questions which would be somewhat helpful in their journey. And the first one, which is one of the chapters that I'm most happy with, um, is just this idea of provocation and to create a degree to create an understanding of the degree to which you need to change and how urgent that is. Because a lot of companies don't really need to change, to be honest. You know, if I sort of sit on my desk now and I look at things I've got around me, you know, I've got like a nice sort of cup. You know, I think that comes from a pottery maker. I don't think pottery makers are facing existential threats because of AI, or I don't think 3D printing is changing the pottery industry. You know, I've got a some sort of massage oil. Um, you know, again, I don't think the world of, world of sort of FMCG or CPG or beauty, you know, you, you could argue that influencers are having a, an effect on how people discover new products. You could argue that D2C brands are quite interesting, but I don't think these companies are facing existential and immediate threats. But then I thought, actually, you know, maybe you don't have to change, but maybe you can, you know, so actually maybe the company making this beautiful cup, you know, maybe they can go into the rental business of, of pottery, or maybe they can use their relationship with design and how people live their lives, you know, to create more homeware products that uh, are somewhat new. And I think companies that change because they have to um, tend to go about it in a way which is defensive and without a tolerance of risk. And it tends to be sort of mired in um, sort of limited thinking and reactionary um, reactionary body language and, um, and sort of infighting and whatnot. Whereas I think companies that sit down and change before they have to. Um, I think there's something about something being unnecessary, but fun, um, proactive that you're in control of. I think that's a much better reason to change. Um, so most of the steps sort of follow on, which is, you know, how do you guide companies through a robust process to actually change in ways which are optimistic um, and fun? Um, how do you structure yourselves for that? How do you create a culture where that's maintained for longer as well? Yeah, interesting. You also talk about earlier in the book this somewhat unrealistic demand on, on uh, we'll call them traditional companies, right? To uh, to produce uh, like the digital unicorns, even though they're producing a profit and things are moving, they don't really need the transformation. But there's outside pressure on them to act as if they're digital startups. Yeah, this, this was quite a big moment for me actually, because um, during the pandemic, I started investing quite a lot of money. And broadly speaking, in what appears to be radically simplistic, it dawned on me that there were two types of companies. There were companies that paid a dividend and you were basically um, expecting a company to carry on paying you back money as a shareholder and most of its profits, it would turn into dividends. Um, and then there were basically companies that didn't really pay a dividend at all. And the whole idea of buying them is that they're going to become much faster, uh, sorry, much bigger. Um, and they're going to invent things. And actually, if you looked at most of the companies that that we spend most of our time with, you know, they were sort of Procter and Gamble's and Coca-Cola and and Hilton Hotels. And these companies were paying back big dividends. Um, and basically, you realize that if you're the CEO of these companies, you're sort of incentivized to make sure that things stay quite similar. If you're a growth company, then you're incentivized to grow much more quickly. And therefore, you have to do things that are quite ambitious and change and invent. And I suddenly realized that for about 15 years, I've been going around the world thinking, you know, why are things not different? You know, why is um, Sony not making more interesting things? Why are car makers not more excited about EVs? You know, why are hotel companies so slow to change? 
and I kind of realized that actually their their mandate um, stopped them from doing stuff. You know, the the entire reason why these companies existed was based on you know maintaining the sort of circulation of of dividends back to their shareholders, and that obviously reduces sort of risk. So I was a sort of immediately quite. I was better able to understand why we live in a world where there's actually not that much change, especially in big companies. Interesting. You also, I'm also interested in that you uh, you put culture for transformation last. Yeah. As a, as you know, because we keep hearing that it's culture change driving business transformation, and you're kind of putting that on its head that it's business transformation that drives culture change. Yeah, and it's a good example of where I may be t- entirely wrong. Um, and it's a good example of how I, I do tend to think about things differently, perhaps almost for the sake of it. But I couldn't help but think, you know, if you if you sort of think that the way to change is to change your culture and then sort of magically, you know, by getting people to behave differently, um, the structures then change and then the products that you make change. And then the way that you're incentivized change. I just don't think that's realistic. I think, um, you know, the culture is almost the the sort of vessel of the company um, and the sort of shape of it. And I think it's far easier to get the mission right and the structure right and the KPIs right. Um, and then into that, you can then get the right talent, you know, through recruitment and through promotion. Um, and it's then easier for the culture that you create to then sort of sustain itself because effectively you don't have any sort of barriers to it behaving like it wants to. I think if you bring about a culture change and then you kind of, you expect those things to happen automatically or you expect to be able to change those things later, I think you end up not changing the culture and it just reverts back to how it used to be before. Interesting. It reminds me of Mark Earle's famous quote, right? Instead of changing the way we think to change the way we act, it's actually the opposite. We have to change the way we act in yes. order to change the way we think. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sure you can end up getting in all these sort of semantically precise conversations about which is first and do they happen together and what is the causal direction and whatnot. But I think as um, as a starting point, I think the idea that you should change everything uh, sorry, you should change culture and then change everything. I just, I just, um, it, it just doesn't feel like that's a, a sensible way to go about it. You know, the other thing too, we, you, you write that people need to stop using the word change because we hate to change. Yeah, we like progress. We just and we like impact, but we don't really like having to change. I, mean, I thought that is, was that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I don't know how true it is. I'm kind of scared that it might be true. Um, <laughs> Like, I, I don't want it to be true. Like, I'd much rather think that people like change and that companies do change and the departments do change. And I'm very sort of optimistic and I'm sort of in in awe of people, you know, as a sort of concept. And I, I think it's quite lazy to just say people don't change. Um, but it may be quite true. And that's not to say that the way to change a company is to fire everyone because they never change. But it's more that... Um, the the sort of conversation you should have, you know, quite precisely or literally should not be, you know, hello, everyone needs to change. Um, it'd be much better to celebrate new behaviors that people can adopt and to give people a sense of where they can grow in different directions. And it should be less, you know, don't do this and more, you know, in addition to this, I'd also like you to think of this and this. Um, I think it's about sort of building new and sort of replacing the old more than it is about change itself. But I'm aware that those things sound quite vague unless you give 
precise example. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's like when you're talking about if you tell people that you need to change or we're undergoing a change, it's a very, it feels very external. We think you need to do mm -hmm. something different rather than in inviting people in to create the progress or to create the impact or be proud of what they're doing then they're driving the change. It kind of ties back into this. You paint the mission and the vision, and then you let people figure out how they can help do that rather than saying, everyone's okay, everyone, here's the new thing, follow it or you're out. Mm -hmm. I think it's part of these processes as well. There does need to be a degree of, of honesty and um, almost like an audit. Because one needs to be aware, you know, not, not every company has been put on this planet to always be changing, to always be innovative. Um, what innovation is to a, massive multinational is very different to what innovation is to a small sort of thrusting startup i think in a way you know having more honest conversations about this i think is the way ahead um you know do you really want your staff to ask for forgiveness not for permission you know because people say things like that but actually the moment that people tried to you know buy a company car that's not on the company car scheme you know asking for, for forgiveness doesn't really work very well um the moment that people you know take three weeks off to learn in sub-saharan africa um without asking for permission you know that doesn't go down that well in most companies um so every everyone needs to sort of find their own way of doing this i think you know, you, it was also interesting, you were in Bali recently and you talked about, you saw all these beautiful things, right? And you talked about this idea of creating a world of wonder and delight, you know, <laughs> through these artistry. And, and I thought that was interesting because uh, my last podcast I did with two professors from Dartmouth College, uh, one's a computer science mm -hmm. professor and the other's a brain science professor and are writing a book called Design for Delight. Mm -hmm. and, and their whole their whole thing is we've trained all these designers to solve problems, Mm. Right. What's the problem? Fix it. But we haven't really trained them to make people, you know, figure out a way to make people happy and giving delight and joy in the process. And I thought that was really interesting because like at the same time, you're tweeting out these things of like, wow, look at all these adornment and artistry and yeah. right beautification is why does that uh, seem like it's superficial? I was going to say, there's a sort of weird thing where things that you can't measure are quite, uh, quite sort of readily discounted. And it's quite easy to feel embarrassed by the pursuit of beauty because it seems a bit thin and a bit superficial and a bit unnecessary and a bit extravagant. But I see the world and, you know, every time you you pay, you know, with a Apple Pay, you know, why does it just go, eh? you know, couldn't it go, da -da 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 -da? you know, can it make like a little nice noise to sort of celebrate the fact you're about to like own something that you're excited about? You know, couldn't the act of unboxing something that you've bought on the internet feel like quite a, a nice sort of glamorous introduction to what you're about to put on? Um, you know, couldn't price labels on on items sort of look like the people who were behind them, you know, got quite excited about them? Um, I, I feel like a lot of the world has been sort of optimized in a way. You know, you look at websites and it's as if the whole process for designing them was actually to start with a site that looked like everybody else and then to sort of fill in some boxes with you know, words about your mission statement or something. And and you end up with things that are very similar to each other. And I think, you know, I, I would just sort of hope that people are a bit more ambitious about what might be possible. You know, why why are there no e-commerce websites that actually feel quite delightful to use? You know, why does the act of adding something to a car, you know, not sort of feel like a moment? Um, why when you, you know, use a car, why are there not sort of, parts to the experience that feel a bit superficial, uh, feel a bit unnecessary, but quite um, sophisticated. 
So I think there's just an, an interesting process to go through, which is to stop using design as being a sort of engineering device to optimize or to solve problems, but instead, where appropriate, being a way to add little bits of meaningful garnish or tiny moments of delight to our life. You know, you're reminding me of a, a, a project I had with a client a number of years ago, customer service group, right? And they're measured by, what are they measured by? They need to have fewer yeah. conversations in a yeah. shorter time, and they need to get people off the phone. And of course, they're not solving any problems, so the phone calls are increasing. And so they, you know, they can't, we talked to them, and they're like, you know, my, according to the script, I can't, I can't say these things. And I'd like to just, you know, I'd like to make people leave happy because then they won't call again. Mm -hmm. And so we actually went through this process of testing this. And finally, the boss has said, no, we're, you know, we're not doing, we're just not doing that. It's, they couldn't wrap their heads around. They couldn't measure the, you know, the, the lack of recalls to making people happy. They needed these, these things. And, and you kind of get into them, kind of as as we end this. You you're, you talk too about innovation. Uh, you say we have no ability to imagine things that have never happened before. But what we need is we need the spirit of disruption to be about optimism and creativity, and not paranoia and defense. And I think that's kind of like encapsulate this last these last little bits of conversation. I think that's such a good hopeful message. We need a little more hope in our conversations around the future rather than this dystopian AI directed climate change disaster. I think so. I mean, um, <laughs> you mentioned a lot of interesting topics there. Um, you know, even the word disruption within it, it kind of has a sort of sense of negativity. Yeah, actually, the, the heart of disruption is this idea that if you challenge assumptions, amazing new things are possible. Um, you know, if you're a car maker and you're threatened by Tesla, you can either look at that as being a very bad thing, or you can look at the the sort of architecture and the physical parameters of EVs and think, you know what, like this is a whole new canvas here. You know, we can car we can design cars that look radically different. We can now improve them overnight thanks to OTA software updates. We can now change the ownership model. We can now evaluate trade-ins in a much more um, precise way, much more easily. We can change the economics of car ownership. You know, you now need to get cars maintained less actually you can get really excited about what it means you know what what's the role of a dealership um if you can sell direct uh, if you're a bank that's threatened by a near bank you can either think oh god you know look how nice their app looks or you can start thinking oh wow you know look at all these things that we thought that people didn't want that actually are quite successful um look at all these new um you know product roadmap um product product improvements that we can stick on a roadmap that you know we didn't have permission to do before I think ultimately, um, you know, change is a really nice thing and technology is a really nice uh, lever to opening up new possibilities. And, um, you know, if I could do one thing, it would be to try to get people really excited about how technology creates a whole new world of opportunity. And uh, rather than to be threatened by it and to want to hide and to act small, um, it's actually much more sensible for us to get you know, excited. And our main problem should be how we focus our energy on all the exciting things that we can do. Well, on that positive, hopeful message, I want to thank you for chatting with me. And uh, I look forward to following you more on your discussions on LinkedIn. But thanks for taking the time out of your busy, hectic traveling schedule to talk with us in, in Sweden. My pleasure, Rich. It's been great. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for listening to Innovation Explorers, Hello Future's English podcast 
that dives into the challenges and rewards of innovation. You've just heard a chat with Tom Goodwin, discussing how we can create meaningful changes for people. We'll post a link to Tom's book, Digital Darwinism, on our site, as well as a link to Tom's LinkedIn profile. I have to admit that I am greatly inspired by Tom's posts on LinkedIn, as they are some of the most engaging, provocative, and thoughtful ideas on innovation around. If you want to chat in person, either in real life or virtually, book a fika with me, as we say in Sweden, anytime. This is Rich Nadwarni from Hello Future. See you next time.